you know, I often joke about um, when I'm in Florida, I never want to come home. <laughs> um, that I'm never coming back again. Well, it turns out um, Delta does not want me to come home today because my flight got canceled and then all the flights out of Florida got canceled tonight. So I am stuck. We're stuck. Is it, is it a disappointment to be stuck in Florida? I mean, not really. Is it stressful to not know when we're going to get home and to not have a place to stay? Yes. So big thank you to Chad's mom, Judy, who is likely going to put us up tonight <laughs> um, because the airport does not, is not helping us. Anyway, so I am, I wrote a sermon. I was prepared. I was ready to preach uh, this morning and I am here. So look, you get, you can get the palm tree and a little bit of the ocean outside of my window. Uh, I thought I'd give you a pretty view behind me. So look, I'll even scooch a little so you can see. Oh, it's so pretty. Oh, it's so pretty. Um, the door is closed there and the window is closed because there is a band playing live music. <laughs> um, they're okay. They're okay. But they just played Purple Rain. So they know their audience. All right. So uh, a little known and strange fact about me. I have this thing called hyperosmia. In non-scientific terms, I am a super sniffer. I have an extremely heightened sense of smell. It is a joke in my house that uh, I'll be baking something and the smell of it will waft its way into the living room from the kitchen. And then 10 minutes later, my husband will be like, oh yeah, that does smell good. <laughs> so smell has gotten a newfound sense of respect, I think, over the last two years. It's a common symptom that people of COVID is that people have lost their sense of smell. And so they really realized how much we like smelling things. So that has made me wonder, what are people's favorite smells? Of course, there are a gazillion lists for this out there, but here are the most common. Are you ready? If I was in person, I'd be making you raise your hand if you agree with these, but we'll just go through the list. Ready? And I think Katie's kids time was going to be about this a little bit too. So maybe you already, maybe you already heard your favorite smell on that list, um, or maybe not. But the most common smells, favorite smells are fresh cut grass, coffee, bacon, which my husband said should be at number one, fresh air, vanilla, the ocean, rain, pine trees, freshly baked cookies, and baking bread. Is yours on there? Anyone? Um, true story, the smell of gasoline made both the favorite and least favorite lists. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I think it's funny. Um, and then... Um, if there was a smell that you didn't get on there for me, my favorite smell that's not on there is, uh, babies. There's just a newborn smell that cannot be recreated. I don't understand, but it just is delicious. Um, smell is the sense that is most commonly tied with memory. So for example, there was a perfume when I was a sixth grader that literally every girl in my class wore at, um, St. Joseph Laboratory School in St. Joseph, Minnesota. Uh, literally every girl wore it. And if I smell it now, which I don't even know if it's available anymore, but if I were to smell it now, I would be 12 years old back in Miss Stainbrook's class. Um, those of you who elder millennials might remember Malibu Musk. That's what it was. <laughs> Malibu Musk. Okay. Anyway, so it would put me right back in Miss Stainbrook's class. Also probably give me a migraine. It was so sweet and so fake, but I loved it. Uh, and this isn't just a, a me thing, right? Smells being associated with memories. Uh, it's 
physiological. Our brains work this way. So here's a little biology lesson for you this morning. When you see, hear, touch, or taste something, that sensory information first heads to your thalamus, which acts as your brain's relay station. And the thalamus then sends that information to the relevant brain areas, including hippocampus, which is responsible for memory, and the amygdala, which does your emotional processing. So anytime you do any of the sense, touch, taste, see, any of those things, it goes to one of those places, either an emotional processing center or memory processing center. But with smells, sense, bypass, this is interesting. Join me on a nerd trip. Biology is so great. Biology major right here. Um, sense bypass the thalamus and they go straight to the brain's smell center known as the olfactory bulb. And it is directly connected to the amygdala and hippocampus, which are the memory center and the emotion center, which might explain why the smell of something can so quickly trigger a memory or even an intense emotion. So even without out understanding or learning the science, you already know this, right? You already know this to be true. Scent brings back memories or emotions faster than literally anything. When I was five years old, my grandfather died unexpectedly. And I don't, five years old, right? I was so young. I don't remember much about the funeral, but I do remember an abundance of yellow roses and how they smelled and what I smell when I smell that specific, and when I smell that specific yellow rose smell, like a video in my mind, I see a vivid image of that moment when my mom tried to smile at me, even though she was crying. Sometimes, I don't have to do that right now, but sometimes when I've been home for a long time, I will take a seashell out of the jar of seashells at home and hold it up to my nose just to recapture the feeling even for a second of being on this beach in Florida, <laughs> uh, my happiest, happy place. Smells unlock feelings and memories faster than anything else, which is why I got stuck on one line from today's gospel reading. Did you catch it? The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It is this line that creates all the conversation that happens afterwards. So here's the scene being set. Uh, this was no ordinary perfume. We know that pretty quickly by the telling in the story. It's no Malibu musk is what I'm saying. Nard was a costly aromatic ointment preserved in alabaster boxes or jars. And it's used very sparingly for anointing. A little went a long way. And one box was likely enough to last its owner a whole lifetime, right? We we tend to not anoint people who aren't close to us. So this was used for our immediate people. Our loved ones are the ones we anoint. In his rebuke of Mary and her use of the entire jar of perfume, Judas names the value of that jar to be around 300 denarii, which is thought to be about a year's wages for a worker at that time. So for us to get a grasp on this in today's finances, if we were to take the median income in the U.S., which is... $32,000, just pause for a second and think about how low that number is. The median income in the U.S., $32,000. Um, Mary took a jar of perfume worth $32,000 and poured it all on Jesus's feet. So yes, it was a big deal, likely very worth the gasp and, and shock that followed. 
Also, if a little goes a long way, that line, that line, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, seems like maybe it was a little bit of an understatement here. Now, this nard wasn't any old anointing oil. This specific kind of anointing oil was a singularly purpose anointing oil. It was anointing for burial. It is used after someone has died. It's a part of their post-death pre-burial rituals. It was one that was very familiar to anyone who had lost a loved one. And let's be honest, it was very familiar to those right there in the room because Lazarus was sitting there with them. This was a party to celebrate the fact that he had risen from the dead. So yeah, he was sitting there uh, having had been anointed by this oil. That smell was pretty fresh in the memory of those who had gathered to celebrate his resurrection. Now the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I think a less pretty, less poetic way to say this, but very blunt is this line, to say this line from John's gospel is to say the smell of death permeated the house where they gathered. So what next, right? What happens next in this story? What happens when Mary anoints Jesus with death oil? And then what, right? You, you hear the gasp, you recognize the shock that has happened. I imagine it's a very uncomfortable moment. What Mary is doing is so intimate and sensual and emotional and no one wants to be faced with the reality of what she is doing and what it means. It's not subtle. The smell of death perfume is filling the room. And Jesus lets it all happen. After he has said all of the stuff, weeks after weeks after weeks of him saying all of the stuff about dying, that he's going to die, that he's not going to be there. He says all of the stuff over and over and over again. I think even if they can't admit it, they no, but no one wants to talk about death, what is coming, how uncomfortable they are. No one wants to do that. And so instead they direct their critique at the easiest target, which is Mary. How dare she? She's so wasteful. If that were me, I would take care of the poor. It's a virtue signal and an insult all at once. Even more so when you learn, and John, the gospel writer, even gives us this clue that Judas is getting mad at her because he kind of wanted to skim a little off the top because he held the purse strings, right? So he could have pocketed a pretty penny, so he's going to say this thing that makes him look good, but selfish at its core. Virtue signal indeed, isn't it? Ready? This gospel story has always struck me as blatantly unfair. The disciples seem so mean to Mary. It seems like she did the thing no one else would do. She had listened to all the things Jesus was saying and responded to what was obvious in a way that was impossible for everyone to ignore. The house was filled with the fragrance of death. So the disciples did what dare I say all of us do when we don't want to face the reality of big feelings surrounding what is happening. They deflected. Their grief came out sideways. There's this uh, delightful kids book. Had I been a little more prepared, I would have given it to Katie to read for kids time, but I wasn't that prepared. So um, there's this delightful kids book by Kelly Rhodes Dummler called Quilly's Sideways Grief. Little Porcupine and Quilly 
loses a loved one and he doesn't want to talk about it. And he keeps getting angry and feeling angry and doesn't know why. He says, oh, my quills just feel so heavy. And his friend says, sideways grief, that's what you have. It happens when your feelings try to find a way out, even if you don't want them to. Your feelings will find a way out. I think this definition of sideways grief is perfect to describe a lot of our life right now. We are surrounded, absolutely surrounded by loss everywhere. The numbers of COVID loss are staggering, too big to comprehend. And that is on top of all the loss we've endured outside of COVID. People we love have died. People we love have gotten sick. Our way of life has drastically changed for many of us. The way we interact with others has changed. Church has changed and we don't like it. Listen, I do not like change as much as the next person. I am here for this. I don't like it either. Not at all. So what, we, what do we do? Instead of facing the challenges and changes in front of us, we complain, we find a good target, and we go after them. We say everything is a waste. We complain that it doesn't look like it used to. We get mad at the wrong people, but that does not remove the smell that has filled the room. It doesn't. Our grief is just coming out sideways. Now, it's important to notice in this story, Jesus doesn't join in their jumbled mess of feelings. I'm sure he has some big feelings about what's coming for him as well, but he does not join them in it. He tells them the truth. Again, leave her alone. She has anointed me for my burial. She is doing the right thing. Jesus doesn't join in the disciples with their fear and anger and sideways grief because he knows something that they do not know. Although you'd think they would, being what they had just witnessed and why they were gathered around this table to celebrate Lazarus. But he knows that on the other side of death is resurrection. This doesn't mean he isn't also feeling his own fear and anguish over what is to come. Yes, but he will go and pray pleading prayers in the garden in just a few short days. But he also knows that his death is not the end of the story. Death is real. It's impossibly hard. But the only things that resurrect are things that have died first. We cannot have one without the other. Pretending it's not there doesn't change it. Getting mad about the ways things are happening doesn't change it. The house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume right now. This house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Can we be honest about what is happening and let it happen? Can we let the things that are meant to die, die and watch what rises in its place? Can we stop holding on so tightly to what is dying in order to let something new rise? Y'all, resurrection is real. It is real. We watch it in real time every spring in Minnesota. Everything that has died comes to life again. I get that it is so much harder when the things that have died are places or people, ways of life, things we love. I get it. But the most difficult death doesn't make resurrection less real. It just doesn't. 
no matter how hard and how much we don't want it to happen. When death happens, that's hard. It doesn't change the resurrection that follows. All it means is that we need it more. This Lent here at Prince of Peace, we've wondered together on this theme of metanoia, right? Not just repentance, but recommitting ourselves to loving like God loves us. Being truthful and kind and not being so scared of what's happening. The house is filled with the fragrance of perfume. We can smell it in the air. I keep coming back in the story, y'all, to this image of Lazarus sitting there at the table with Jesus. You know, he's not a disciple. He's one of Jesus' friends, maybe his closest friends. I'd like to think that even before Mary poured the whole bottle of perfume onto Jesus, he still smelled, Lazarus still smelled like that same anointing oil. It lingers after all. It stays. I like to think that those sitting next to him had the uncomfortable reminder all night long that just a few days earlier he had been in the tomb. I just can't get this image out of my head of this moment for Lazarus, not for Mary, not for Jesus, but for Lazarus. I wonder if for him that smell meant something different. If he didn't fear death anymore, his own resurrection had changed how he saw death, how he smelled death. Is that possible? I wonder if it changed it for him. If that moment wasn't scary, if it didn't cause him to shoot his grief sideways or get angry at the wrong person or tell Mary how wasteful she was. I wonder if his own experience of resurrection changed how he felt in that room where the fragrance was filling the space. I wonder if we too might be able to see the things around us that cause our fear and anxiety to come out sideways as something new that we might open our eyes to see the resurrection that is close behind. It's so close. That is yet to come. Yes, yes. For so many of us, resurrection has not happened yet. We are still right in the midst of loss and fear and anxiety. I'm not saying it's not real. It's so real. So resurrection is yet to come, but it is coming all the same. Whether we want it to or not, whether we are prepared for it or not, the fragrance has filled the room. So I wonder.